Welcome to the Fort Vancouver Podcast, a program that provides a personal, behind-the-scenes look at Fort Vancouver National Historic Site, the Pacific Northwest's premier archaeological and historic site. I'm Greg Schein, the site's chief ranger and historian, and I'll be your host. Join me as we talk to staff, partners, and volunteers, and explore what makes this dynamic urban national park relevant today. In the process, we hope to help you forge your own personal connection to this very special and significant place. One can be easily fooled at Fort Vancouver fooled into thinking that the sweeping landscapes, historic and reconstructed buildings, elegant green space, winding trails, and array of programs and facilities fully represent the site's national significance. In actuality, one underlying thread connects all of these more visible attractions to many other more obscure features, weaving them into the tapestry of a national park. That connecting thread? Archaeology. Fort Vancouver is an incredibly rich archaeological site. The buildings and stockade, the most visible parts of the park, are accurate reconstructions based on archaeological evidence combined with historical research. While these reconstructions help bring the site to life, the remains of the real fort are buried in the ground. Broken dishes and bottles, nails, window glass, beads, wooden footings, and other artifacts are the tangible remnants of the people who lived, worked, and witnessed important events here. The large quantity and age of these artifacts, as well as the more than 50 years of archaeological investigations at the site, make Fort Vancouver the premier historical archaeological site in the Pacific Northwest. This episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast is divided into two parts. In part one, we'll meet staff archaeologists Dr. Douglas Wilson and Dr. Robert Cromwell, learn about the sub-discipline of historical archaeology, and discover how it contributes to a better understanding of the park and its history. In part two, we'll go more in-depth with the archaeologists while learning of the past, present, and future history of archaeology at Fort Vancouver. In both parts of this episode, no fooling, we'll learn much about the important role that archaeology has played and still plays today in our understanding of the significance of this unit of the National Park System. To start off, let's hear from Dr. Wilson and Dr. Cromwell. We'll call them by their first names, Doug and Bob, and learn a little bit about their roles on site. I'm Doug Wilson. I'm the director of the Northwest Cultural Resources Institute, and uh, I started here at Fort Vancouver back in 2000. And at that time, uh, I uh, started a program of archaeology and public archaeology with uh, my colleague, who will introduce himself in a minute, and uh, uh, which has developed into this partnership public archaeology and cultural resources program here at Fort Vancouver. And I'm Bob Cromwell. I'm another archaeologist here at Fort Vancouver National Historic Site. 
and I also have been here since 2000, um, been with Doug and uh, developing this public archaeology program here since 2000. And some of my roles here, I really am the lead for compliance work, so kind of the cultural resources management aspects around the park, making sure that uh, undertakings and projects don't damage uh, any of the crucial archaeological deposits that are around the site, as well as just assisting with research and all the public archaeology roles here. Although their interest in archaeology is similar, both Doug and Bob connected to the site through different pathways. Here's Doug. I remember coming out to the Pacific Northwest in, in 1992, and one of the first places I went to, believe it or not, was Fort Vancouver. <laughs> and uh, I, I have always loved uh, historical sites. Uh, I grew up back east in Pennsylvania, and we visited all the forts, uh, like uh, Washington's uh, first uh, battlefield uh, in western Pennsylvania, Fort Necessity, which is, is also a kind of quintessential case in historical archaeology. Uh, Fort Ligonier, all the, all the, it was kind of at the time of the bicentennial. And so I've always had an interest in, uh, in uh, kind of those historical sites. And uh, it, uh, it was, I've always uh, loved this place and uh, jumped at the chance to, to work for the National Park Service and help promote the archaeological as well as historical heritage here at the site. Bob's first visit in elementary school made a lasting impression. I actually first came to Fort Vancouver when I was in the fourth grade. I had a wonderful fourth grade teacher, grew up in Albany, Oregon. Um, during the Oregon Trail component of our history year, uh, we actually did two separate field trips, one to Shampooey State Park in Oregon and one here to Fort Vancouver. And I think uh, it was like a two-month lesson plan on the Oregon Trail, and I just think it left kind of a little legacy in my mind about the settlement of this place. And then I attended Oregon State University and uh, received a bachelor's in history and then actually moved into historical archaeology while I was there. And some of the first archaeology I did was at the Shampooey site, which again was established by the Hudson's Bay Company or, or retired Hudson's Bay Company. So kind of my developmental years in archaeology was spent looking at HBC-style sites and in fact, I also participated for a short time with the 1993 carpenter shop excavation when uh, Browner did his field school here. Um, eventually, I, you know, I went into cultural resources management. I worked across the country and spent a couple years in Delaware and in the Midwest, and then um, eventually went on for my PhD at Syracuse University. And sometimes the joke is you have to go away in order to come home. And I was lucky enough to finish up my coursework there just in time for the job opening that appeared here and was uh, lucky enough to be selected as, as uh, an employee here. Doug's background, especially his education and work experience, has also prepared him well for a career in archaeology at Fort Vancouver. He's often asked the inevitable question, how does someone become a professional archaeologist? Well, a lot of uh, students ask me how much school, especially high school students, how much schooling do you have to go through to be an archaeologist? And, and uh, the, the minimum amount is, is to get a, a bachelor's degree um, in order to, to work in the field. But uh, most people 
that kind of get to the title of archaeologist, whether that's working for the private sector or the public sector, have to get at least a master's. And uh, both Bob and I now have, have PhDs. So my uh, work came through the University of Arizona. And uh, I actually went uh, for all three degrees there. Uh, it's a great program in archaeology. And I worked uh, with a fellow named Bill Rathjay. And Bill Rathjay was a Mayan archaeologist who, uh, after uh, having a very successful career in Mayan archaeology, threw it all away to study modern garbage. So he's uh, considered uh, one of the leading uh, cutting-edge uh, theorists in historical archaeology, really looking at the very, very recent past and how we can use archaeology to understand our own culture. And so it was an easy leap for me to go from modern archaeology, looking at uh, landfills and modern issues of recycling and resource conservation and hazardous waste to go back a few generations to the historical period and many of the same you know the way that we got to where we are today as a society is really built on those that recent colonial past. Doug and Bob work in a specific field of archaeology known as historical archaeology. Most people think about archaeologists as studying very ancient things, the pyramids in Egypt or you know, the Great Wall of China or, or the, the Mayan ruins or the Aztec ruins in Mexico. And historical archaeology is kind of a subfield of, of archaeology, but it really focuses on uh, the more recent past and really looks at the colonial period uh, throughout the world. Uh, the spread of European colonies throughout the world and what the impact that had on um, the indigenous peoples. So in North America, uh, on the East Coast, you have sites like Jamestown, where you have a, a written record and you have colonial peoples coming in there. Out here on the, in the Pacific Northwest, really it's only within the last 200 years that you, you have what we would call historical archaeology with these colonial sites, fur trade forts, and things of that sort. Again, really here in North America, as Doug said, it's really looking at those sites that specifically have written records associated with them, primary records of people who actually resided there. I think that's the power of historical archaeology, is we can look at two very different data sets. We can look at historical records, what people said they were doing, uh, what people said, you know, the behaviors that were going on at a specific site. And then we can look at it archaeologically and make comparisons. Okay, this is what this group of people said they were doing at the site, but what does the archaeology tell us? You know, what are the little facets of their history that they didn't write down, that the archaeology can fill in those little niches and in their individual histories? This leads us to an important question. While the merit of historical archaeology as a venerable and useful field of study is beyond dispute, what value does it bring to this unit of the national park system? With a sizable historic record replete with inventories, letters, journals, maps, sketches, and photographs, what does historical archaeology, and the stuff archaeologists find underground, bring to the table? 
More specifically, how can the archaeological record inform our understanding of Fort Vancouver? Both archaeologists are quick to cite examples of the value of historic archaeology at Fort Vancouver, and specifically how the archaeological record can inform historical understanding at the site. Well, a, a really uh, basic um, comparison between the historical record and the archaeological record, just as a demonstration, um, is you know when people wrote things down in the past. They had an, a, a reason for doing that and a purpose for doing that. And, and one of the things that was recorded quite often because this was such a strategic post was how big was the stockade. And there's probably seven, nine, twelve different, you know, in the historical documents of how big the fort was. And all of them are wrong based on, you know, the very early archaeology done by Lewis Kaywood he was able to identify the exact size of the fort and beyond that, all the different iterations of maintaining the fort walls and expansions. And there were actually a, a number, probably five different expansions of Fort Vancouver. And interestingly enough, none of the historical accounts come anywhere close, including accounts done by royal um, engineers who should have been able to very precisely measure the fort. So there's there's a contrast. You know, sometimes the archaeological record confirms historical accounts, and sometimes they don't. And that that's what makes the, uh, the historical archaeology so compelling is that you get these different ways of looking at the past. Yeah, I mean, along those lines, we can hear what an amazing data set here is that the clerks who were here were recording copious amounts of records. They were recording transactions. They did yearly inventories. They recorded everything that arrived by sailing vessel for trade and the amounts of, of different furs that were leaving. And what's interesting, uh, while doing research here, we often see types of artifacts that are in the archaeological collection that may not be represented in the historical documents, in these inventories. And one specific class is Chinese export porcelain, a very specific class of object. These porcelain china dishes, um, which range from cups and bowls all the way up to jars. They're, they tend to be a gray body, blue decoration. They're really lovely. They're really spread far and wide in the 18th and 19th century in European-style sites. Heck, even going back to 15th and 16th century sites in Europe, you see these materials. What's interesting is that none of the inventories that we have here specifically lists Chinese export porcelain. And yet archaeologically, we find it. And, and so here's a case where the archaeology and the history, the history has left something out, and yet it is here. So what does that mean? And with the archaeology, we can actually posit some hypotheses on how this Chinese export porcelain arrived. Um, one of the current hypotheses is, is that the Chinese export porcelain trade was actually controlled by another company, the East India Company, uh, which was also another British um, royal company, which did not apparently like trading with the Hudson's Bay Company. Um, but it's interesting to, to find out that both of those companies apparently had a trading station in the Sandwich Islands, what is now Hawaii. And one can actually posit a hypothesis that perhaps what is going on is you actually have a black market trade. It's off the books. It's not hitting the inventories. But somehow or other, 
these Chinese export porcelain vessels are going from East India Company, probably a trading house, to the Hudson's Bay Company uh, trading house. And then it's getting here by sailing vessel. And whether or not that's actually the crew of the sailing vessel who's trading it in, or maybe a clerk is making a special deal, we may never know because those records aren't there and perhaps it was a black market deal, so it's not going to be in the written records. But that's just one little facet on how archaeological data and historical data sometimes complement each other and sometimes don't fit together at all. And so it it makes us ask additional questions. And that that's one of the, the really essential parts of historical archaeology at this site is that you can learn things about people that are not well represented in the documentary record. For example, we had this fantastic multicultural village out to the west of the fort here. Most of the people that were literate actually lived in the fort. The clerks, the chief factor, the chief traders, the surgeon. Most of the employees that lived here, say that the 600 to 1,000 employees and their families that lived in the village were illiterate. They came from a wide range of different ethnic groups, uh, different racial mixes and uh, different uh, places in the world and nobody really wrote that much about them. We have a few employee lists. The Catholic Church left a few records that are of use, but most of what we know about those people comes from the artifacts that they left from their house sites in the village. Yeah, to date, we don't have a single primary source written by a person actually residing in the village. We have visitors, usually Americans, coming to the village, sometimes residing there and actually recording what it was like. But we don't have any written records of a person who actually lived there and actually, you know, was there as an employee. And so, as I like to say, the history of those specific people is actually written in the ground through the archaeology. Has the archaeological record contributed to anything tangible on site? You bet. It is directly underfoot, as visitors to the magnificent new land bridge and village trail can see. Here's Doug. For people visiting the site who haven't visited for a while, one, we have this great land bridge uh, built by Jones & Jones that provides a a marvelous uh, view of both the fort site, Pearson Airfield, but really focuses really on the village, I I would say. Um, And then there's two new buildings out there uh, that people who haven't been here for a while probably haven't seen before. And they're small buildings. Now, most people that that come to the fort, they visit the chief factor's house and they look at all the fine furnishings and the spode on the table and they say, wow, I wouldn't mind living in that house. (laughs) But when they go out to the village, uh, these reconstructions, which are placed uh, on exactly the same locations as sites that were excavated in the 60s and then more recently uh, with some of our field schools a few years ago, uh, they'll see the size of those structures and the sorts of things, the very simple kind of furnishings that would have gone in uh, those uh, village structures and, and really get a better sense of what life was for the majority of people that lived here. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, just five years ago, leading tours out in the village area, I would often say this is the birthplace of the Portland metro area as we know it now. This is the first place you could have come to in the 1830s, 1840s period and seen European-style architecture 
little houses arranged in rows along roads with actual fence lines demarcating, uh, you know, personal property and ownership probably. And five years ago, I would say that, and people are looking at this field, an empty field, which is transected by a highway, a couple highways. And I think it was very hard for them to envision that. And it's amazing, just in the last five years, the amount of change that has occurred out there, because now we do have that land bridge, we have a connection with the waterfront to the fort site, and now we've reconstructed two of these buildings, you know, that we have estimate there were 50 to 60 buildings out there. So obviously, this is a very small portrait of what it was like, but at least we're getting to the point where we're showing there was something there. So now when I say this is the birthplace of the Portland metro area, people can at least start envisioning in their mind what that means. Luckily, one of the reasons we chose these two house sites is they're relatively close together and they're in a nice row. So it starts to present, oh, there must have been some sort of density if you have houses that close together next to one another. And um, the other thing is, is that the invaluable part of the archaeology here in many ways is the length of time archaeology has been done. You know, the Park Service started archaeology here going on 63 years ago. And as Doug said, some of the evidence we used to reconstruct these actually came from 1968 and 69 excavations and then supplemented by more recent excavations from, I believe, 2001 through 2003. So we can have different generations worth of archaeology at a specific site, helping us to detail what happened at a specific location. One of the other things that just blows me away about that village is we had this incredible diversity of people, people from all over the world. In the 1850s, it was called Kanaka Village because of the numbers, the high numbers of native Hawaiians who were there. They called them Sandwich Islanders or Kanakas. It's a Polynesian term for native Hawaiian. But there were also uh, English, there were Americans from back east, there were French Canadians, Iroquois, and then uh, many of the American Indian tribes from the Pacific Northwest either worked for the company or many times married into uh, people that worked for the company. So there was an incredible diversity of Chinookan and Cowlitz and all the different tribes of the Pacific Northwest, or many of them were represented in the village. And the thing that really blows me away is that they were all using the same types of spode ceramics that you find on the chief factors table. In fact, Bob wrote his dissertation on comparing those ceramics and, and that, that china that, that they had out in these very simple houses and how it, it compared with the chief factors. Yeah, the spode china is fascinating in many ways. It's arguably the best china that was made in the 19th century. The spode firm in England has sat the royal table under contract, I believe, since 1816. And luckily for us, they had a monopolistic contract with the Hudson's Bay Company in the 1830s and 1840s. So upwards of 90% of the ceramic wares that we have here were all manufactured by the Spode Company. Uh, so when you're looking at the Chief Factor's house, and when visitors go to that reconstructed Chief Factor's house, and they peer into the central dining hall, and they see this enormous table, which can seat upwards of 20 people, with all of these fancy china settings sitting there, these transfer printed wares, people, it's easy for them to envision this is a correct setting, this looks right. This is what I'd envision the 19th century Englishman to be doing, you know, kind of this classic tea ceremony with matched sets of china. But what's mind-blowing is that out in the village, 
where the average house is 20 by 20 feet and has an earthen floor, my dissertation showed that many of those households had just as much spowed china as is represented at the chief factor's house. So as, as I like to say, even though they might be living in a 20 by 20 foot hovel with an earthen floor, they're still eating off of the queen's china. You know, so it paints an interesting picture. And of course, the whole concept of how and why did these people end up with that much spode in their household? Because one of the things I looked at in my dissertation was to use the historical records and look at how much different classes of people here were, were earning. And certainly the people inside the fort who were termed gentlemen actually earned upwards of three times to over 50 times as much as an average person living in the village. So you'd expect them to have something that would be expensive, like spode. And we actually have the prices on how much they charge for the spode here. Out in the village, though, we're, again, we're finding just as much spode out there as we are inside. So one way or another, the people in the village are ending up with that spode china. And whether or not it's they're using their earnings, the credit on the book, and it, they just have that much demand for it. Or again, is there another black market going on? Are gentlemen in the fort somehow trading it to the people out in the village? You know, those are the little questions that we're still trying to answer through the archaeology and the history. Well, I think some of the story is picks up with the American Indians that were out there because we know that there were alliances made between the, the people living at the fort and the local Chinook and other tribes to help facilitate getting furs and, and trade goods. And we know that there were slaves out in the village, and those slaves would have been owned by American Indian women, probably Chinookan uh, women, who were at the top rungs of the status hierarchy within the, the local American Indian villages. So we, we know that there are some very elite American Indians that are, are at the village, living in these admittedly small houses, but they're important people and they've got ties to the local American Indian communities. So um, that relationship, I think, is very important for getting a feel for what that village was to the people that lived there and to the, the local indigenous people as, as well as to the, the people that were inside the fort. Hi, this is Cassie Anderson, and I'm a park guide. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of this episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast. This is Celeste Jones, and I'm a volunteer. Welcome back to our episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast. The popular perception of an archaeologist has been greatly influenced by the likes of fictional characters such as Indiana Jones and Laura Croft. These are entertaining, but are they accurate? Do Bob and Doug spend their days in extensive labyrinthine excavations, eluding bad guys and locating the world's treasures in between a few dinosaur bones? What does a professional archaeologist actually do at a site like Fort Vancouver? I would say that maybe about 
20% of the time, if we're lucky, is out in the field. I think both Bob and I really love field work, and we love going out there and, and digging things up, doing tests, and recovering these objects that tell us about the past. But probably the bulk of our time is in the laboratory, uh, identifying artifacts, uh, preparing things for curation. Um, what we do is maybe just a blip in the, the life of the artifacts, but it, it really is an important blip that, that really carries through to, to you know, our, the way we record it and identify where it was found in the ground really is crucial for, for scholars in the future to, to identify um, uh, where that artifact came from and, and it, its importance really. And then a lot of our my time as director of the NCRI is doing emails and all of those uh, you know office things, working on Word documents, uh, doing grant proposals, uh, etc. That really take up a, a lot of time in the office. Then during the school year, I uh, teach at Portland State, so I, I'm teaching classes uh, usually one or two a year uh, in cultural resources management or historical archaeology or or uh, something of, of that sort uh, during the school year. So uh, I unfortunately don't spend too much time in the field. And um, my job time here is very similar to Doug's, other than I'm not teaching at Portland State. Um, and as I like to say, probably 80% of my time, I'm excavating my inbox in the office. <laughs> uh, I'm only spending about 20% of the time in the field as well. Uh, again, a lot of report writing, uh, analyses of artifacts, and most of my time is actually filled up by doing compliance documentation, uh, basically reviewing all of the projects that occur, not only at Fort Vancouver, but we also have agreements with the city and the U.S. Army, and now even with federal highways in the Vancouver National Historic Reserve, um, to make sure that we do compliance with the National Historic Preservation Act, Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, um, for all the projects throughout the reserve so that they're done kind of systematically and uh, looked at through kind of a, a broader scope of, of, of vision here to make sure that the entire historic reserve is preserved at the same level. And that, that's really not just paperwork. Uh, that's, you know, going through, reviewing projects, making sure that changes to historic structures are done appropriately that have a historical architect review them and and uh, Bob's uh, work here is very very important to ensure that um, we keep this national treasure uh, as well preserved as possible while we're we're inviting all these visitors to come in and all our partners to to uh, visit and use this important place. One of the distinguishing features of the work of Doug, Bob, and their colleagues is that they aren't sequestered up in some ivory tower or producing obscure work that will gather dust on a shelf or have limited public benefit. They are part of a public archaeology program. Through this, they actively involve the public in the work of archaeology through some very creative and popular activities that foster an understanding of and stewardship for the site and its unique resources. Our public program is really very exciting. I mean, many archaeologists that, that say, uh, work for a uh, company uh, and do projects and say, highway projects or do projects that are very far afield and are away from the public, 
they don't get to talk to the public very much. In, in fact, in some cases, they're they're uh, encouraged not to talk to any public coming up because it might mess up the project that they're working on. But here at a national park, we have the great opportunity of being able to interact with the public and being able to share with the public what we're doing, why it's important, and what are some of the, the good, uh, valuable information that we're, we're gathering, as well as why it's important to protect these kinds of places. So uh, it was really a, a wonderful partnership um, that we developed with first Portland State University and later Washington State University on the Vancouver campus just north of us uh, to, to bring in a public archaeology field school to be able to uh, bring students to the site and teach them not only the skills of doing archaeology but something that is incredibly frightening to all archaeologists, which is actually talking to people about what they're doing. And, you know, most archaeologists get into archaeology because they can only have to deal with dead people. <laughs> but uh, the, the truth is that there's a, uh, it's, it's really valuable to be able to, to uh, have our own staff as well as the students that we work with uh, to be able to explain to the visiting public uh, about what they do. And, in addition to that, we have children's programs. I don't know, Bob, do you want to talk a little bit about the Kids Digs? Yeah, we have the Kids Dig program, where essentially we create mock archaeological sites. We've designed a, a two-hour program for children 8 to 12 years old. Um, you know, we really want children who are still in that cusp of, of, of really learning, uh, you know, in elementary school, going into the middle school age, who are literate, so they can actually start, you know, understanding that archaeology is not just about digging, that you actually have to record things, that writing is just as important, if not more important, than actually excavation, you know, recording things as we're finding them. And we've created this program. Uh, we've done it now every year since 2001, and uh, we've actually created it now so that we have upwards of six to eight offerings per year. And we've uh, made it for an uh, basically uh, no-fee program, uh, where we can take upwards of 20 children per session on specific weekends to have them uh, come out and excavate it. And we're very excited that this year we did a pilot program where we actually utilized an area that we had previously excavated, archaeologically excavated, and we've actually re-excavated that spot and created a much larger archaeological site essentially in the ground for the children to actually explore. So we're protecting the actual archaeological deposit. The children aren't going to be necessarily excavating original archaeological deposits, which uh, we want to preserve, but they're getting the concept at the same time on what it is like to actually be doing excavation. Um, in addition to that, when you made that comment about you know being holed up in a white tower, and I think just the nature of our location at the fort, it's the opposite of that. We're very much in the public eye. We're in the reconstructed first store building, and essentially three-quarters of the building is dedicated to curation space and archaeological processing, as well as, um, um, you know, actually having our space to do work. And we have an interpretive corridor where there are windows lining our office space, and so the public literally walks through, and they can look in as we're doing our work inside. We call it archaeology in a bubble. That's right. (laughs) 
Archaeology at Fort Vancouver is different than at other sites, but how is it different? Are there any challenges or opportunities that this site in particular presents? Here's Doug. This site has incredible opportunities. We, we believe this is the premier historical archaeological site in the Pacific Northwest. And what makes it so fabulous is that it has so many different levels and so many different components that allow us to, to learn about the past of the Pacific Northwest. For example, some sites might be an industrial site where there was a factory, or some other site might be a colonial settlement. Other sites might be an underwater site. Well, we have all of those wrapped into one site. We have everything from basically pre-contact American Indian sites here within the historic reserve all the way up to World War II and beyond represented in the artifacts and the, the sites that we find here. So it's really this incredible diversity of objects through time and it has all these different facets. Uh, one of my favorite components is the World War II spruce mill, or World War I spruce mill. The spruce mill I had never heard of before until I started to work here. And it became very obvious that there was a major thing that had happened here because there's about two, one and a half to two feet of fill covering everything at the fort site before you get down to the Hudson's Bay Company, the fur trader post, period. And it turns out that during World War I, there was the world's largest spruce cut-up mill right on the same site as Fort Vancouver, the, the fur trade post. And in fact, all that fill they brought in has really preserved those earlier deposits. The spruce mill was incredibly important in the history of the Pacific Northwest because it changed the way that loggers and uh, logging companies worked together um, to to uh, do it. And it all came about through uh, the federal government basically nationalizing the lumber industry. So while the spruce mill was only here for about a year and a half, it really had far-reaching consequences and represents this enormous industrial site that has tremendous potential. You know, the opportunities that Doug was talking about, just the sheer density of deposits here, in many ways that is the, the challenge of this as an archaeological site, where in one one-by-one-meter excavation unit, you could have everything from World War II deposits from, um, you know, a Jeep depot, overlying World War I spruce mill deposits, overlying Hudson's Bay Company deposits, overlying prehistoric deposits all in one, one by one. So you could have literally over a thousand years of human occupation represented in a very small footprint. That's very exciting, uh, but at the same time, it can be very daunting archaeologically. And then, at, you know, along with that, just the sheer numbers of artifacts that we do end up recovering. It's not uncommon uh, for us at a specific excavation area to be recovering 50, 60,000 objects within a few weeks. So it, that becomes, it, that is wonderful because the amount of data that you have then to interpret, but it's also a very big challenge. 
Um, and luckily, we've designed our public archaeology program to include a volunteer program. Uh, we have a year-round volunteer program. We have upwards of over 20 uh, volunteers who are trained in archaeology and trained very specifically in our laboratory methods. And uh, in fact, we have uh, we recover so many artifacts. And one thing that a lot of people don't understand is every hour we spend in the field, we're going to spend three or four hours in the lab processing, cleaning, cataloging, and analyzing those objects to make sense of it all. So a big emphasis of our volunteer program is actually the laboratory work to assist us with processing those tens of thousands of objects that we'll sometimes excavate. So if anybody is interested in volunteering in archaeology, this is a wonderful place to come and learn about historic material culture of the 19th and 20th centuries, um, as well as prehistoric objects, and to learn how archaeologists use methodologies and scientific methods to analyze everything and make sense of a pile of 50 or 60,000 broken objects. This concludes part one of this episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast. Please join us for part two as we continue our discussion with Dr. Robert Cromwell and Dr. Douglas Wilson, archaeologists at Fort Vancouver. A special thank you to the talented classical guitarist Michael Leong. This episode featured the pieces Corante and Gavotte from his album Tropical Tapas. Hi, this is Cassie Anderson, and I'm a park guide. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed this behind-the-scenes journey and that we've been able to connect your interest to the meanings inherent in the park's many resources. For more information on the park's programs and events, please visit our website at www.nps.gov forward slash F-O-V-A or call our visitor information desk at 360-816-6230 during regular business hours. Thanks for listening.